Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8. It's verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of God. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help today. Even as this passage today is simple, there is depth here that takes our attention. Would you set aside distractions? Would you set aside burdens? Would you set aside worldly cares and worries and anything that might threaten to take us away from your word. Help us to hear you clearly as you speak. Give us your spirit to help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's been a few weeks since I was in the pulpit, but you may perhaps remember that uh, the last time we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And now we have finished covering the greatest, most famous sermon ever preached. And today, now, we come down from the mountain with Jesus. Uh, In a sense, we have seen Jesus' authority in his teaching. That's the way that the passage ended. Uh, If you remember, and I did not make this part of the sermon that I preached last, but the, the passage ended by saying, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so they have seen the authority of Jesus in his teaching. They've seen that this man isn't quoting other rabbis to build his his arguments and his teaching off of. He doesn't appeal to various authorities. He himself is the authority. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he took people to the heart rather than just to the surface, rather than just to performance. He, he told them, he said, stop play acting at, moral, more to, at morality. He said, actually come to God brokenhearted. Actually repent of your sin. Actually seek to be changed in the inward man. He told them to, to put aside hypocrisy. He said, don't perform. Trust in God. He said, don't worry about your life. Live for eternal things that matter. Don't live for petty things that fade away. That was Jesus in this sermon. And so they have seen Jesus' authority in his teaching. But today it says this. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So these crowds are astonished by his authority. And now he has followers. Here's what's happening. We are moving from the most famous sermon ever preached to now observing and studying the most famous life ever lived. Right? We're going from the sermon. We're going to see how a life lived in these things, looks. We're not just going to listen with words. We're going to watch a life. So next, the people, they're going to see the authority of Jesus in a series of 11 miracles in the next chapters of Matthew. So today, we're not going to look at all 11 of the miracles. 
But this is what's going to organize a good chunk of what's coming up next in Matthew. There's, there are going to be 11 miracles, and those miracles are occasionally going to be broken up with teaching about Jesus, teaching about his ministry, teaching about what it means to be a disciple. And then Matthew will continue to take us back to the miracles again. And so the authority of Jesus to minister and do miracles by God's power is this consistent theme in Matthew's gospel. Matthew wants you to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he's presenting to you the proofs. And it's not just proofs of miracles that he did, but it's proofs of, of texts from the Old Testament. You'll frequently hear these sayings that this happened to fulfill the scripture. Matthew wants you to believe. He doesn't want you to just study some figure of history. He wants you to believe. And every single passage in the whole book of Matthew exists so that you will believe. Now, today's passage brings us to the healing of the leper. It's just four verses. But even in just these four verses, Jesus is demonstrating something about his ministry. He's demonstrating that there's something new about his ministry And he's demonstrating that there's something old about his ministry. Um, It's new because he's turning back the clock of the effects of sin, right? He's, for this man, he is rewinding his physical clock back before the fall, right? He's taking this man back and he's giving him a new life. Um, And he's also reminding us, though, that there's something old about his ministry because he said this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to abolish the law. And he really meant that. We're going to see how that is the case. In other words, Jesus has told us about himself. Now he's going to show us himself. And so this morning, very briefly, I want to show you, first, in what sense Jesus is a new Moses. Second, I want you to see how Jesus brings new creation. And then third, we need to see him appeal to an old command. So, yes, Jesus is doing a new thing, but he's not not abolishing the old thing in the process. So... Let's move forward. If that sounds confusing, let's move forward. I'll show you what what I mean. First, this morning, Jesus is a new Moses. Um, I don't want to make more of this than the the text does, but I think there's something you should notice. Um, If you have a familiarity with the history of the people of Israel, then then this is something you might notice, is that Matthew uses this phrase in verse 1. It says, when he came down from the mountain. And if you look at this verse in the Greek, and then you read the Greek translation. Uh, uh, if you read the Greek translation of Exodus thirty four twenty nine, it's almost the exact same phrase in both of them. So I'm going to read you Exodus thirty four twenty nine. I'm not going to read you the Greek. I'm going to read you the English. You're welcome. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So Moses came down from the mountain and he came as someone who immediately terrified the people because of the glory that had, was showing off of him, right? Not because he himself was great, but because he had seen God and because God is great. And so the people wanted to look at him and they wanted to look away from him. He's, he's holy in a sense because of whose presence he has been in, and yet that's terrifying. And so they're drawn and they're repulsed by him all at the same time. But, but Moses also came from the mountain with something for the people. He came with something in his hands. He came with the law. When we talk about the law, I think we may have a complicated relationship with that, right? Uh, some of you may have a little bit of a rebellious streak in you. 
Um, not that any of you have a rebellious streak in you, but some of you may have a rebellious streak in you, and you may not like laws very much, right? Or you may not be the compliant type. Uh, or you may be a very compliant type, and you, you wonder why everybody doesn't drive exactly the speed limit, and why doesn't everybody wear masks in, when they're alone in the bathroom in the hospital? Um, and when you, when you think about the law of Moses, it's very important that we think rightly about the law of Moses. If you're thinking, if you're trying to look for a, a villain in redemptive history, I would encourage you not to look to the law as the villain of the story. Right? The law is not bad. The law is not the enemy. The law is not the bad guy. The law is good. Right? When we're talking about the Ten Commandments, what are we talking about? Well, we saw it in our questions and answers in the catechism today. The law is the summary that God gave to us. The Ten Commandments specifically are the summary that God gave to us of, of all that he believes that we should know about human morality and life. Right? So in the Ten Commandments, God's giving us this incredible gift. He is taking the moral law that has been true ever since and before the time of Adam and Eve, and he summarized it for us, and and he wrote it down for the people of Israel, and he wrote it down really for all people. So if you want to know what God requires of you, Romans 1, in Romans 1, Paul says, you know it without actually even being presented with the tablets. It's actually written on your heart. And every person in every society who has ever lived has known what God expects and demands of them. We all know it. He says it's written on our hearts. It's why we feel so guilty. It's why we we instinctively know when somebody has treated us unfairly. Uh, It's why we we see some things people do and we think that's bad. And and it's, it's, it's instinctively in our guts. It's a part of us. And it's why even people who have never read the Bible, are neurotic and unhappy and feel terrified at the thought that there may be a creator out there, right? Because they do sense what they ought to do. They do sense what they ought to be, and they know they fall short, right? There's the, there's, there's the person I ought to be, and, the pers- and there's the person that I am. And those two are very, very far from each other. We all know it. See, the law is the reason that we know who we ought to be, and it's the reason we know something is wrong in the first place. What's the problem in that situation? The law is not the problem, right? The law is not the issue. Paul says something later. He says the law is holy. He says the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says, I am of flesh. I am sold under sin. That's what he says in Romans 7. And so when you think of the law, think of the law as something that is good, and you are the problem. Right? The law is not the problem. The law is good. And what this means is that the law has good content, but it also carries with it bad news for sinners because the law also terrifies our hearts. It terrifies us if we violated it. When when God's law speaks to our guilty conscience, we never walk away feeling better about ourselves. Right? We never walk away feeling like, like, like I'm doing great. I just, I just heard all Ten Commandments read out loud and I feel good about myself today. Like nobody's, nobody's ever said that. If we hear the commandments that Moses was carrying the way that they're intended, we will come away feeling inadequate and we will feel guilty. And here Jesus is. He's on the mountain. And what is he doing? Well, one thing you notice in the Ten Commandments is he doesn't go, you know, I know that the, the law of Moses really bothers some of you, but I want you to know 
you don't have to do any of those things. Because what did he actually do in the, with the commandments? He said, oh, all of you who think you're keeping those commandments, you guys should feel really bad about yourselves. <laughs> he says, think about how much deeper it goes and how much deeper you're failing at it, right? He says, you feel, com- you feel guilty when you hear the commandments. He says, you haven't heard half of it yet. Think of God really demands of your heart. And so when Jesus was teaching, he actually deepened the guilt for people who wouldn't turn in humility and people who, who, who weren't poor in spirit. And so if you're not humble, if you're not poor of spirit, if you don't throw yourselves upon the mercy of God, the Ten Commandments weigh like a ton of bricks, like an infinite ton of bricks, right? So when Jesus was preaching, he wasn't overturning the law of Moses, but he was showing that a shallow reading of Moses where we live lives based on appearances is not going to do. So, so at once he's doing what? He's increasing our need for grace. And then Jesus holds out God's grace to us in the same sermon. And I hope you saw that when we, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. I was at pains to show you the grace of God that was all over that sermon. So he doesn't lighten the load, and yet he lightens the load. Isn't that interesting about the Sermon on the Mount? This is something the law of Moses only promised. The law of Moses couldn't deliver it. And that's what makes this moment so spectacular, right? Moses comes down from the mountain, and what does he do? He carries a message that God is good, and God is just, and God expects you to be good, and he expects you to be just as well. And for people who are sinners, the goodness of God and and the goodness of his law means that we are guilty. But even the law, Jesus has been showing us this. Even the law is like marbled throughout with these promises that God knows we're sinners and he makes provision for sinners and he he presents to us himself as a savior. And he kept showing us over and over again that the savior was coming, that a true sacrifice for sin would come and bear our sins. So Moses came down from that mountain and he, he handed that law to his people and it was the heaviest burden. It was heavier than the tablets themselves, so heavy that they couldn't bear it. And yet what does Jesus do? What did we see in the last few weeks? What did we see when we, we heard this sermon from Jesus? Jesus comes down from the mountain. He comes down with the law for his people. In fact, I would argue the same law for the people. He's bringing, he's bringing them the same law and he's giving the same law to them. And yet the law that was heavy coming from the hand of Moses, from the person of Jesus, was light as a feather. Jesus says something later in chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he never, he never abolishes He never rejects. He never walks away from the law. He never compromises God's word. He faithfully affirms and carries and lives it. The same law was a burden coming from Moses. And yet because he is the savior, Jesus makes the law light as a feather. And he carries its weight upon uh, upon himself so that his people don't have to. So even as he hands it back to them, suddenly they have something gracious in their hands instead of something that's burdensome. How does he make the law light? He, He made the law light by keeping its rules. He lived up to its standards. And on the cross, he bore its curses. 
Right? The law is filled with curses. And what does he do? He says, I'll take those upon myself. I'll take upon myself the responsibility to keep this law. And I'll bear the curses too. And so when he hands the law to us now, we aren't crushed by it and we aren't cursed by it. We still love the law. We still want to observe it. We still want to live it out. But now, but, but now we actually can. And when we fail, God tells us, in Christ, you shall not surely die. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and all the burdens of Moses become the delights of Jesus. What a blessing. That's what we first see here. Jesus comes down from the mountain like Moses as the prophet of God with the word of God, fulfilling the promises of God, carrying the blessings of God, a law to guide us. And in that sense, I hope you understand that Jesus is like a new Moses. But second today, I want you to see a new creation. In what sense do I mean that? Well, it takes us right to the narrative of this man with leprosy. Uh, look at verses two and three again. I'm just going to read it. There's two verses, so. Um, Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Um, Death and disease are a consequence of the fall. They are a consequence of what took place in the garden when the fruit was, was eaten by Adam. And what happens here is Jesus taking that death and creating new life. New life. He's, he is restoring what's broken. He's restoring what was dead. And he is bringing it back, right? This is Jesus' this is Jesus's whole ministry is restoring what was dead, bringing back to life that which was gone. I mean, think of it. This is a man who was Jewish, this, this leper. Um, we know the man's Jewish because Jesus gives that command in verse four. He says, go show yourself to the priest. So, so this is a Jewish person, one of the Hebrew people. And yet he is as much an outcast of society as a person could possibly be. He, he's worse than a Gentile to these people. Um, if you had leprosy, your life was over. You really, you really could never be a part of civilized society again. You couldn't go to church. You couldn't gather with God's people. You were as good as dead. Our people truly were afraid of those with leprosy. They were truly disgusted by them. Um, I, at first I thought, we can't really relate to that. And then I thought, no, actually, the last two years, we can relate, right? Um, I hope we as Americans in 2022 will go easy on those who were so fearful of, of leprosy. Um, back when COVID-19 was first spreading in China, it hadn't come to the U.S. first. I had a friend who was a missionary in China, and he sensed things were going to be very bad. And so he made the decision to send his family back to the United States. And he told me, he said, when they got back to, this is just in the middle of Kansas. He said, when they got back to the United States, my kids were so lonely. They were excited to see their friends and no one would come near us. Everybody treated us like we were monsters. He said, we've been back for two months and everybody still treats us like they're going to get sick from us, even though we never got sick. He says the kids' friends won't talk to them. No one will come around. They thought that we were going to come back and see their friends. And instead, everyone is so paranoid. They're treating us like we're actually infected or like if they got infected, that it was going to kill them. And if you, 
If you remember those early days of 2020, before we had vaccines or pills or treatments for COVID, the fear was incredible. There was so much mystery. Maybe, just maybe, even if you can't relate to the fear, you saw enough people who did that you get it, right? What if we get this thing? How is everybody going to treat us? Well, in the ancient world, there were no vaccines. There were no treatments for anything. There's no miracle cure. There is no Paxlovid for leprosy, right? If you get it, you didn't just carry it for a few weeks until it passed. You carried it and it changed your life and it marked you forever and your skin wore away and your features visibly changed in horrifying ways and, and you slowly but surely fell apart. That's what it did to you. So it didn't just mean separation from society. It meant separation from God's people in worship, right? If you came into contact with someone with leprosy, you had to be ritually cleansed before you could sacrifice again. Um, Lepers had a very different lifestyle from everyone else. Leviticus 13.45 says people with leprosy had to do this. This is a straight quote from the text. They had to wear torn clothes and let their hair hang loose. And they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, wherever they went. And you remained unclean and you lived alone as long as you had this disease. This man comes to Jesus. He is truly without options. He is as without hope as a person can be. He is without fellowship. He is without friendship. He is without corporate worship. I mentioned earlier, Jesus is like a new Moses, right? Moses and Elijah are two of the Old Testament prophets who healed lepers in the Old Testament. Jesus does the same here. He sees this man, the definition of poverty, the definition of hopelessness, the definition of outcast. And this man comes to him believing and he speaks to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice that there's, there's no doubt in his voice uh, what Jesus can do. The question is, 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 what will he do? What will he do? He puts himself at Jesus' mercy, right? He doesn't say, if you can heal me, please do. Um, he, he doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doesn't doubt, doubt his authority to heal. This is his only hope. This is the only way that he ever returns to God's people. The only way that he ever sees his family again. The only way for him to return to worship again. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, I will be clean. And then Jesus does something striking. He does something beyond a mere exercise of his will. This guy, all he said was, if you will, You can be clean. He doesn't say, if you will, lay hands on me. If you will, give me medicine. If you will, do X, Y, or Z. He simply says, if you will, if you, if you have, if you desire it, I can be healed. But Jesus goes beyond that. He touches the man. And it is something he did not have to do. Something this man didn't ask for. Something totally optional to Jesus. And when that happens, Jesus, the clean, touches this man, the definition of unclean. As unclean as you can get, that's what this guy is. I want you to imagine the compassion of this act. How long had it been since this man felt the touch or kind-heartedness of another person? 
how long since this man had known human contact? How long since anyone had ever gotten this close to him? And he touches him. This is more than he asked for. This is human kindness, right? He is, he is doing something compassionate for the man. He didn't ask for compassion. He asked for a miracle. Here's what also happens that when he touches this man, it also removes any doubt as to where the healing came from. You know, it's really incredible here, though. As disgusting and scary and unpleasant as leprosy is, the uncleanness, the cleanness of Jesus cannot be overcome by the uncleanness of even a terrible, rotting disease like leprosy. See, rather than than leprosy transferring, it's as though the cleanness of Jesus transfers, right? Jesus is clean, and this man is immediately cleansed. The uncleanness is wiped out by Jesus. And I would just say something here then about coming to Jesus. I have talked to to Christians who are weighed down. They're weighed down by their sense of sin. They, they feel like they're unworthy of coming to Jesus, uh, even though they hear it said and they hear, hear, them, hear the scriptures tell, of, tell them that they can come to Jesus in faith. They still are focused upon themselves, thinking about themselves, and they're saying, I'm not worthy to come to you. Even though they say they trust in Christ, they still feel that heavy sense that, of unworthiness. Like they're still that same old sinner that they, that they always were before they came to Christ. As though nothing's changed now. And it's very tempting to focus on our unworthiness, right? We're sinners. It does not always feel instinctive for us to come to the Holy One and actually expect forgiveness. But on the other hand, that instinct is wrong if we're followers of Christ. That instinct is wrong. That instinct of shrinking back from Christ as though maybe we shouldn't, as though it would be wrong, as though there's something unjust about this. It's wrong because Jesus is the one we come to for cleansing. We don't, we don't, we don't come to him cleansed. We come to him to be cleansed. We don't have to fear that our history, our, our rap sheet, our, our previous sins are so horrible or disgusting that we are beyond the pale of his grace and forgiveness. Mm. We don't have to fear that. Think of, this, think of it this way. The most disgusting and horrifying uncleanness in the ancient world, and Jesus walks right up to it, looks it full in the face, and lays hands on him. No hesitation. No icky face. Uh, sometimes I eat broccoli in my house and I tell my wife, I ate good today. I had some broccoli. And she says, but you made a face. (laughs) I did the right thing, but I made a face. So it doesn't count. It's not as healthy if you make a face. Jesus doesn't make a face when he touches this man. Right? All, there is no hint of disgust, only love. Hallelujah. Only big-hearted compassion and a merciful touch. We are sinners, and he is not repulsed by us. Nor is the Father in the least bit. We can't make him unclean. We can't soil him. We can't solely him. He does not receive sinners with hesitation. He doesn't receive unclean people while holding his nose. He receives you and me if we come to him with big open arms. 
all he calls us to do is admit that we're unclean. This man had to admit that he was unclean to ask Jesus to cleanse him. And that's what Jesus calls us to do too. He says, confess your sins, throw yourself upon my mercy. There will be enough mercy. And I will show you that mercy with a big, eager, glad heart. Would you just revel this morning in the gladness of God to have you? You sinned even this morning. In Christ, he sees you and loves you. You feel ashamed. In Christ, he takes the shame away and he sees only the son whom he's proud of. You failed him. You feel disgusting. He looks at you in Christ and you are lovely to him. Please honor Jesus. Do not insult his grace. Hear the gladness of Jesus to have you. Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He doesn't receive you reluctantly. It is the father's good pleasure to have you. It's Jesus's point this morning, a new creation. It's the second point. Third this morning, we have an old command. Even in the midst of these new things Jesus is doing, he also does something old. And here it is. He tells the man, now that he is healed, to do something very important. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The book of Leviticus, a big seller, I'm told, really, really popular with people. Uh, Book of Leviticus, chapter 13 to 14. It gives instructions for what to do if somebody is healed of leprosy. By the way, I joked just now, and it, it was raw joke. I don't mean that. Um, a while back, I got a commentary on Leviticus by J. Scalar. I found it such a blessing just to straight read it through and along with reading the text. And what you find in the book of Leviticus is almost a step-by-step commentary on Jesus's ministry. I would just encourage you, read the book of Leviticus and what you see is the sacrifices laid out, the things that Jesus does for us laid out, the sins that Jesus washes away, the curses that Jesus bears, all of them laid out for us in the book of Leviticus. So don't look at the book of Leviticus as though it's, it's the necessary homework. Uh, instead, look at it as this beautiful roadmap to the Savior. But in, the, in Leviticus 13 and 14, It gives instructions for what to do if somebody gets healed of leprosy. Now, I love the grace that's already built into that. The assumption is some people are going to be healed of leprosy, right? It doesn't wait for the New Testament to give these instructions. Even in the Old Testament, there is grace there. There is healing there. And the presumption is some people are going to be healed. What do you do when that happens? Well, it says this. It says if somebody is healed, they need to certify the healing by going to the priest to make sure there were no more skin eruptions, Um, super gross. I know nobody gets thrilled to hear the the phrase skin eruptions, Um, but it's a reality of of a a fallen world. Um, It's a three-step process. After the first ceremony, those who were cleansed were pure enough to re-enter the camp. After the second, they could go to the tabernacle. And after the third step, they could fully re-enter society. One of the things you see in scripture is you do something three times, it does something. It underscores its seriousness. It underscores its gravity. It was a big deal to be cleansed, right? You don't just show yourself to the priest once. You show yourself three times because it's a big deal. And in Leviticus, the person who's healed is required to make a gift of thanksgiving for his healing. 
Um, God is so gracious that he even gives a less costly ritual gift for those who are poor. If you're poor, it's a much smaller gift that you're supposed to give. And no doubt this man is probably poor. He's probably not a wealthy man. But here's, here's what I want you to see. And what I think Matthew is intentional to include. This is almost like bookkeeping, right? This is almost like homework. Okay, now that I've healed you, he could have ended it by saying... Uh, The man was healed and he went away with gladness. But instead, Matthew makes sure we know something about Jesus and his priorities. Jesus says to this man, make sure you keep the law. He says, keep the Levitical law. It's like Jesus is, is saying, don't throw off the law. And he's showing us in action how Jesus does that. How does Jesus do it? He makes sure that people still keep the law. When they get healed of leprosy, the lepers need to show themselves to the priests, just like Leviticus 13 says. Jesus said it already in his Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, that doesn't mean that even today, if we were to be cured of leprosy, that we would need to go and find a priest. The ceremonial laws of Israel are no more. There is no more temple. There is no more priesthood. Uh, Those things that were before are no more. So the, the point of this message is not, therefore, we need to reenact everything in the Old Testament. The point here is Jesus' attitude towards the law. It is not Jesus versus the law. In much of Christianity, when we hear Jesus taught about, he's oftentimes taught as though he's a law overturner, as though he goes in and turns the tables of the law over. And instead, what we see is Jesus is very much affirming the law. He's affirming the goodness of the law. He's affirming the goodness, in this case, of showing yourself to the priest. And what I want you to do as we, as we go through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to look closely when the ministry of Jesus and the law intersect. Because I want you to notice that Jesus at no point overturns the law. He doesn't negate the law. He doesn't say to disobey it. He doesn't say to trample on it. Instead, he is pushing people to live it out and to live it out truly not in a performance way, but the way that it was always written, the way, the way that it's written from the heart, the spirit of the law. So, you, so observe the ministry of Jesus and everything you will see is Jesus positively living out and embodying everything that is really there in the law of Moses. I challenge you, show me where Jesus broke the law, ever. Give me an example of Jesus breaking the law. You cannot find it. You can find Jesus violating people's ideas of the law. You can see people, him violating people's traditions that they've created and twisted around the law. But you won't find him breaking the law because Jesus is a keeper of the law from beginning to end. Even as Jesus fulfills the law, he embodies and affirms it in its truest and deepest sense. Jesus cleansed this leper and... On the face of it, this miracle is a straightforward story of a man's life being changed by the miraculous work of Jesus. But there's this whole other level here, too, that I hope you see this as an illustration of how people are meant to come to the Lord. Because notice this. The man comes with no way of helping himself. And in fact, all he can do is actually just bow himself low. That's it. Like, that's all this man can do. This is a man who is helpless who is exactly the kind of person who knows that he needs Jesus. He's very different from the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees have no sense of their own need, so they have no need of a savior. And this guy, on the other hand, he's very aware of his need. Nobody knows 
his need of Jesus quite as well as this man, at least in this passage. I think perhaps it is true that the biggest offense of the gospel today is that we are fed this message from the culture over and over again, that our biggest challenge, our biggest problem, if you go out on the street and ask people what their biggest problem is, I know that one thing you're going to hear from a lot of people is we have too much self-doubt. We think too poorly of ourselves. We need higher self-esteem. We need to think better of ourselves. This is a message that's just drilled into us. Um, We were in a hotel over vacation, uh, over our vacation, and uh, we turned on the television and we watched Nickelodeon. And there were all these kids, like they they do these like these uh, uh, inspirational messages between the shows. I hope you haven't had to watch Nickelodeon anytime soon, but you know, if you're gonna watch SpongeBob, you got to see Nickelodeon. And and in between the shows, it's all like kids going on and talking to the camera about how great we are and how. Uh, wonderful we are and how we need to have higher self-esteem and we need to believe more in ourselves. And I I can't help but think, wow, if you went to modern people and said, what is your biggest problem? A lot of them are going to say our biggest problem is we don't believe enough in ourselves. Um, They keep saying it. And And it's like they know for sure that that's our biggest problem, as if that is the thing, if we could just fix it, then we would be doing better and we would be happier People on social media dedicate themselves to propping people up, telling them things like, you can do it, you can do it, right? You've got this. Um, a while back, Matthew and I were driving to the church, and as we were driving to the church, we were, uh, we were going down Murray, and at the mur- corner, I think it was Murray and Cornell, there were people, they were standing out and they had signs, and at first, uh, I think we both thought this, we'll confirm it with Matthew later, I thought these people were picketing a business, I thought that they were like angry about something and I thought, oh boy, what are people angry about now? And, and once we got closer, we actually realized that it was some sort of random act of encouragement. These people had signs that said like, you've got this, you can do it, uh, you matter, you are enough. And, and on one level, like, I think that we are surrounded by downcast, discouraged people in this world and messages like that can give a really a temporary sense of help. In fact, I will tell you that when I thought I was looking at an angry group of people and then I found out that they were actually quite happy and encouraging, I did feel better, right? I, I felt really good that these people weren't angry about something. I'm so used to angry people everywhere. So what a breath of fresh air. But then uh, on another level, right, our, our problems run far deeper than not believing enough in ourselves, Um, Our real problem is that we live with our eyes on ourselves all the time and we want to feel even better about ourselves. But what if we're what if we're putting all our hope in the wrong place when we do that? Right. What if what if what we really need is to have Jesus set before us and we need to remember all the fullness that's in him that he gives to us by faith? He gives us a fullness that doesn't change and that doesn't ebb. It doesn't flow. It doesn't vary with the seasons. Jesus gives people a gladness that isn't thin or shallow. Um, to translate for that over to today's passage, think of it this way. If the leper is taught that he is healthy enough, if he's taught that he's actually really great, that, that he can do it, that's going to do one of two things. Either, he, either it's going to send him out into the world with this serious problem and it won't actually be dealt with and he'll... He'll never address it and he'll just go around and spread his leprosy and the suffering will continue, right? Um, And the suffering will spread out from him to everyone else. That's one possibility if you give him shallow hope and just tell him you're good, 
You're good, man. Go. Go out. Do your thing. But then on the other hand, maybe he doesn't do that, but maybe he hears the message that he's fine and he's got some dose of sanity and he says, how does that help me to hear that I'm fine and I'm healthy and meanwhile, I have leprosy, (laughs) right? My problem is deeper than just thinking nice thoughts about myself. I'm falling apart here. I need my sickness to actually be addressed, This is a man with no hope in himself. He needs a reason for deep hope, not shallow hope. He he needs well-founded hope that's not just a pep talk. Do you see that? Do you feel that? But but do you see that for yourself as well? Your skin may not be white and rotten. You may not have leprosy, but all of us have the spiritual equivalent. And it's just as real. It's just as real as physical leprosy. Do you really see that your soul is like this man's skin, right? Your heart is so sick and so troubled that you need the Savior to come and give you his touch. Even today, just like this man walked up to Jesus, even today, you can just say to Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Simply by an act of the will, with a touch of his hand, Jesus changes this man forever forever. He reverses the curse. He gives him a taste of salvation. He returns this man to the garden where man and God once walked together in the cool of the day. We can have that too. And Jesus invites us quite simply to receive and rest in him. Look to him in faith and he will say those words to you. I will be clean. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have seen your kindness We've seen your compassion on display here. Would you show the same compassion to those who are here this morning? We don't need to be healed of leprosy, but we are unclean because of our sin. Would you wash us, cleanse us, purify us, wash us of our guilt, wash us of sin's power, present us not to the priest, but before your father, clothed in the perfection of your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.